The Garden Question is a podcast for people that love designing, building, and growing smarter gardens that work. Listen in as we talk with successful garden designers, builders, and growers, discovering their stories along with how they think, work, and grow. This is your next step in creating a beautiful, year-round, environmentally connected, low-maintenance, and healthy, thriving outdoor space. It doesn't matter if you're a beginner or an expert, there will always be something inspiring when you listen to the Garden Question podcast. Hello, I'm your host, Craig McManus. Becky Griffin knows pollinators count. Now she wants you to count the pollinators in the great Georgia Pollinator Census. Being a self-professed geeky kid with a great love for insects, she wore out the bee book in her local library. Now Becky is the coordinator of the Great Georgia Pollinator Census taking place this year on Friday, August the 20th and Saturday, August the 21st in 2021. Putting good food on your table is no accident. In this episode, we will find out how good insects and their supporting habitat make a difference. Becky tells us the simple method for collecting important data to be used by the University of Georgia researchers. This valuable data reveals pollinator trends and is needed to conduct economic valuation studies of pollination. Becky is a Georgia certified beekeeper and works with community and school gardens to increase beneficial insect habitats. She is also part of the University of Georgia's Native Plants and Beneficial Insect Working Group and hosts the Great Georgia Pollinator Podcast. This is a back-to-back episode featuring our guest, Becky Griffin, the Community and School Garden Coordinator for the University of Georgia Extension. You will want to hear Episode 18, Garden with Children, when you finish this Episode 19 of the Garden Question Podcast. We'll hear from Becky right after this. You're invited to ask your garden design, build, or grow question at thegardenquestion.com. Not only do you get a chance to ask your own question, but you might inspire the next episode of the Garden Question podcast. So go to thegardenquestion.com and ask your question. Becky, what is the Great Georgia Pollinator Census? Ooh, that's a loaded question. So the Great Georgia Pollinator Census is a citizen science initiative headed by UGA Extension, where citizens across the state on two days every year, August 20th and 21st this year, count pollinators that are in their pollinator gardens. What's the goal of the census? We actually have three goals for the census. And it actually, even though the census takes place on two days a year, it is a year-long project. Our first goal is to help Georgians create sustainable pollinator habitat to support pollinators. Oftentimes, we have people maybe move in our area from other parts of the country and don't realize that uh, we have a summer drought every year. We get really hot and humid in the middle of the summer, and we get a lot of disease issues. We want to help people choose plants that are sustainable, don't need a lot of care, and support our pollinators. So that's one goal. The second goal is to increase our entomological literacy as Georgians. And all that really means is we want people to learn more about the insects that visit their gardens, not only pollinators, but other beneficials that hang out in pollinator gardens. So they can see that these insects are very helpful for them in their gardening efforts and nothing to be nervous about. 
as I told one teacher, I would love it if people would go from, ooh, it's a bug, to look at the tarsal claw on that bee. That is the second goal, and honestly, it's my favorite. And of course, the third goal is to generate useful pollinator population data that researchers can use to do things like track pollinator trends over time. We have researchers using the information generated from the census for pollination economic valuations. I had to think about that term. So those are our three goals for the census. What does a typical census counter look like? You find a typical Georgian, and that's the same. We have people of all age groups. We have people that are at their place of work that are counting in the afternoon. We have families counting. We have many school groups counting. We even have businesses that bring in clients and do special events to count on census days. So the average counter is really an average Georgian. We want to include just about everybody. What level of training do you need to participate in the count? Well, that is the million dollar question. And at first people were scared off by this thinking, oh, I'm not an entomologist. What do I know? But actually you're just taking insects that you see and placing them into one of eight categories. And you just need a little bit of training, a little bit of insect knowledge. You definitely don't have to be an entomologist and everything that you need to be successful and generate really useful data can be found on the website. We have a wonderful insect counting and identification guide. If you follow our social media, the Georgia Pollinator Census Facebook page, lots of information there. So you have to learn a little, but that's part of the increasing our knowledge part of the project. Definitely doable for anybody in our state. It's a downloadable form that you fill out and and maybe it helps you identify. It's a whole booklet and you can download it. You can print it out. It goes through each of the eight categories in detail, what you can look for, how to tell the difference between the categories, like how to tell a bee from a fly, because we have some flies that mimic bees, how to tell a carpenter bee from a bumblebee, that type of thing. And so then after looking through that and looking at our videos that we have on the website, maybe tuning into some social media, you are well equipped to head out to the garden on the 20th and present us with some counts. What's the process for counting? All right. So you are a Georgia citizen. You wake up on the 20th and you are raring to go. Here's how it would go. You've done some training. You have maybe printed out your counting sheet. So that's an easy way to take it into the garden. You find a pollinator plant in your garden, something that shows some insect activity. So it doesn't matter which plant it is. Maybe take a chair and a glass of sweet tea. Set your timer for 15 minutes. And for 15 minutes, you're going to make a mark on your counting sheet for every insect that visits that plant. And they're going to be eight categories and they are carpenter bee, bumblebee, honeybee, small bee, which is anything smaller than a honeybee, wasps, flies, butterflies, and then anything that you see that lands on that plant that doesn't meet one of those categories goes into the other insect category. After 15 minutes, you will come inside and you'll go to your computer Go to the website, upload your counts to the website, and give yourself a pat on the back because you have just helped pollinator conservation. Is it one count per person? You can count more than once. You can count in more than one place. You can count at home with your family and then count at your workplace. We have a lot of people who will do events 
go to an event at a local garden on one of the days and then count at home on another day. So you definitely can count more than one time. And we have people that like to do that. If you submit the data online, what happens to that data? That data is put into a nice spreadsheet and I spend, we open up the portal for two weeks. You can go in anytime. You can only count on the 20th and 21st, but you have two weeks after that to upload your data. After you upload it, it presents me with a nice spreadsheet. And we ask some questions like, what's the temperature? Is it cloudy out? A couple questions like that to kind of help us sort through the data. If anything looks suspicious, like one year I had someone say they saw 10,000 small bees, I have to contact that person for some clarification. So it takes me quite a while to go through the thousands of points of data just to make sure everything looks right. And that data will go to researchers across the state that ask for it. The first year's data will be published in a peer reviewed journal coming out in September. And after that time, all of the data will be divided by county and year and be placed on the website. For teachers, this is really integral part of the project because they can actually use the data that their kids counted and compare it to other counties or the state as a whole or other years in math lessons. They can do graphing and charting and maybe even do some statistics on the the data that they generate versus what the state generates. What discoveries have you made so far in the first two counts? A lot of things are kind of obvious. Last year uh, was a COVID year, of course. Can't forget that. But it also rained all day on Friday of the count. Well, in Georgia in August, we always have pop-up thunderstorms, but usually we don't have an all-day rain. Pollinators don't fly in the rain. We all know that but we now have data to prove it. We only have two years in, so we can't really spot any trends. But things that make me feel good about our pollinator populations is that term small bee, which is anything smaller than a honeybee. That category encompasses a lot of our native bees, like our leafcutter bees and orchard bees and sweat bees. And to see high numbers of those over the last couple years is really a good sign. I worry a lot about our native bees. We want to keep tracking those populations, keep tracking them with their pollinator plants just to kind of see what happens. What are the participants discovering that they didn't know before the count? My favorite response, because there is a a part of the form that you fill out, um, what did you learn? What did you discover? The favorite thing for me is when people say, I had no idea. Maybe they've worked in gardens their whole life, but they've never sat down for 15 minutes to totally just concentrate on what they're seeing flying around their plants. And they had no idea of the diversity. They had no idea of the different ways that bees carry pollen or how many varieties of butterflies visit their garden or just the scope of the number of insects that flit from flower to flower in their garden. That to me is fantastic because that means now that they know they're going to want to see more insects. They're going to want to conserve more of those wonderful bees and butterflies and even those flies. That's my favorite part of what people say that they learn. Where did the idea to count pollinators in Georgia come from? My background is entomology, and I was one of those geeky kids when I was younger. I visited our little Powder Springs, Georgia library And I checked out a book on bees probably a dozen times. And you remember those old libraries where you had to fill out your name and the card, Mm -hmm. right? Well, I had that book multiple times. So I always knew I had a love for insects. But as the community and school garden coordinator for UGA, I've traveled around the state visiting literally hundreds of gardens 
and seeing amazing gardeners who know a lot about soil, a lot about plant selection, but they didn't quite understand their insect roles. They thought most insects were pests. They were not gardening to attract beneficial insects, and they were complaining about their harvest being low or high pest insect populations. And all of that is related to pollinators. I tied my love of insects with my care for our Georgia gardens and came up with the idea that way. I pitched it to the people at UGA Extension and they were very kind and said, Becky, run with it and see what happens. And so our pilot projects were in 2017 and 2018. And we refined the counting process based on the feedback from those pilot projects. And again, this is our third year of the statewide census. What foods that we eat today depend on pollinators? A lot more than you think. Georgia is a big watermelon state. We grow a lot of amazing watermelons in South Georgia. I think the best watermelons in the world are grown here in our state. We all love them. They're great, cool refreshment, especially as we're getting hot. They not only require a pollinator, but their pollination setup is that their male and female flowers are on different parts of the plant. So if they do not have a pollinator, moving that pollen from the male flower to the female flower, then there will be no watermelon. We have several crops like that, including squash and cucumbers. And before I worked with Extension, I worked at a a farm garden. I had four acres that I worked with and we grew a lot of squash. And I actually had to hand pollinate squash one year with a little makeup brush. And once you do that, that will wake you up really quickly to the plight of our pollinators. So any of those types of plants have to have pollinators. People think of tomatoes as self-pollinating, and that basically means that their male and female parts are really close together. We often think about wind pollinating those plants, but actually research has shown that if we have a pollinator moving that tomato pollen around, we will have better fruit set and we will have bigger and more flavorful fruit. Even plants that we don't traditionally think of of needing pollinators, we end up with better crops with pollinators. We know about our berry crops. Apples uh, need at least eight pollinator visits to set a good apple strawberries, every one of those little seeds you see on the outside of a strawberry plant is the result of a bee visit. A lot of the plants that we really enjoy that add flavor and color and nutrition to our plate are pollinator dependent. What should a pollinator garden look like to be successful? The first thing we tell everyone is you want to make good plant choices. You want to pick things that are going to grow well in Georgia climate. That does not mean lilac. That means plants that we know grow well here that handle disease pressure. We don't want to attract plants that have a lot of pest pressure. We want to start that way. One good way to find out what those plants are is to visit a local garden. If you live close to the State Botanical Gardens in Athens or the Atlanta Botanical Gardens downtown or even the Smith Gilbert Gardens in Kennesaw or Hamilton Gardens up in Blairsville, if you make a visit and see what grows well there, that's a good place to start. But you want a pollinator garden that has a lot of flower form variety, which means you want flowers that open up cone flowers or sunflowers. They're flat, which is a good landing spot for butterflies. You'll see a lot of butterflies on those type of plants. You want flower forms that are sort of sage-like where the bees have to get in there. So different flower forms. You want different flower colors because insects see things a little bit differently than we do. You want a succession of bloom, and that means you want things blooming as early as possible in the spring, going all the way through fall and frost. So at the end of your pollinator garden year, you'll have asters blooming and goldenrod blooming. 
And you want to have a stands of flowers if you want to attract really good pollinators. So one milkweed plant in the middle of a garden is not really going to attract those monarchs to lay eggs on. You need at least three to five of each type of plant. If you do that, they will come. And that's another thing I hear often after we help with a pollinator garden installation. They're coming. I can't believe how many insects that we see here. It is one of those easily rewarded efforts on your part. You build it right and they will come. And if you have any questions about plant choices for your area, your local extension office has a person that's very knowledgeable about your ecosystem in your county, and they'd be happy to help. Let's say I own a business and I want to involve my clients or customers in the pollinator census and promote that. How would I do that? Promoting it is pretty easy. Um, we have a lot of social media that I can send out and you can actually add your own business logo to it. If you want to have an event at your business, we have a tab on the website with information on building a pollinator garden that's the, about the small size that would be perfect for a business. We have a brewery that actually has clients come and count. So we have businesses who do this type of thing. And we also have the counting sheets on the website. You can download and print those, just advertise, have people come out and get creative with it. If you're a brewery, why don't you serve mead that day? If you are a landscape company, Company, maybe highlight uh, pollinator plants in your nursery, that type of thing. We also have businesses that have pollinator gardens as part of the aesthetic of their business. So let's say their employees go out and eat lunch in the pollinator garden. Well, as part of their community outreach, they're allowing their employees to use that garden to count on during their workday on Friday. So use it as a tool to market Use it as a tool to reach out to your employees about giving back to the community. Definitely take all the tools that we have on the website and use them to your best efforts to make the most of the census for you as a business, not only generating counts for us. What about a school teacher? How can they involve their students in the count? We started this as a no-cost STEM program, and that's science, technology, engineering, and math. The website has a tab full of worksheets, lesson plans, ideas on how to make it a STEM program. We have over 140 schools or classrooms who are doing this project. When school starts, they will have events at the school. They will involve certain classes counting or maybe they have volunteers come in with a pollinator garden and help the kids count. It is a no-cost STEM program, and we supply everything that you would need on the website to make it successful. Whether or not you apply for STEM certification, you just want a good kickoff to the school year, you want to teach botany or community service, entomology, anything that you can think of that you can tie that project into. Literature, we have some schools that do haiku poems to the pollinators. They write letters of thanks to the pollinators. They serve foods in the cafeteria that pollinators helped create, like the watermelon we were speaking of early. So again, schools have taken this project and run with it. And there's a lot of creativity going on in our school classrooms all across the state in August. So do you need a school garden to have the count? Or is there a quick, fast way to jump in and participate, even though you don't have a school garden? You really do need a school pollinator garden. You'd be shocked at the number of schools that already have pollinator gardens. I know Extension works with over a thousand school gardens in the state. However, there are schools that do uh, many field trips and visit a public garden to do their counts there. 
either way works. I know with schools, again, this is a year-long project, so we start with them doing some planning. If they don't have a school garden, that can be a place-based educational effort. It can be a problem-based effort where the school kids actually get involved in planning the garden, nurturing the garden, and then culminate in counting at the garden and using their data. So it can be a year-long, not just project for the school, but a year-long classroom for the school. What about if I just want to involve my family, say on an outing or whatever, and we do a pollinator count? How does that work? Oh, I think that is so fun. And we did a lot of that last year. We had mostly families counting. What I recommend, and I raised two incredible daughters, and I was all into the theme when they were growing up. So a good theme for the weekend would be, okay, so we're going to have a meal that involves pollinator-centered plants. And I will be posting some recipes from our family and consumer science agents a little bit closer to time. So we're going to have watermelon salsa, those type of foods. And we even have a Spotify playlist with jazzy songs that you can listen to as you get pumped up to go out with your family and count like Ladybug Picnic. You remember that old classic? You, you won't forget it once you hear it again on the playlist. You can find that at Spotify. Then you go out and as a family, you do your counts and you talk about why is this important? This is a teachable moment. You as a parent are going to learn. Your kids are going to learn. It is something that you can develop passion for. Maybe you do it on your pollinator garden this year and you think, gosh, maybe I want to see more bees. What kind of, let's research what kind of plants I can add to for more bees. Or maybe I want more butterflies. Can we add some larval plants? And then you can follow along. And as the data becomes public, you can really take serious pride in the fact that you did something that helps our state and helps pollinator conservations. I really like the idea of families out there counting, and I will be counting with my family on Saturday. Where are you going to count? I'm counting in my own pollinator garden on Saturday the 21st, and I will probably be posting a lot on social media about what we're seeing and how that's going on. One of my daughters that lives in Kennesaw, she is doing a count at her apartment area for all the people that live around her. I highly recommend it. It is a way for grandparents to interact with grandkids and and get excited about things. Definitely get out there and count with your family. More with Becky Griffin right after this. TheGardenQuestion.com is an awesome website because we expand each podcast episode with accurate resources and links for gardeners. You can also listen to every single episode again as many times as you like. Think of it as an extension of the podcast at TheGardenQuestion.com. What if there's an insect that I just don't know what it is? And that happens because we have a lot of diversity on insects. And if it doesn't fit into one of the main categories, just put it in the other category. If you snap a picture of it, your cell phone is a great tool for zooming in and getting those close-ups. Take a picture and you could email that to me or you could put it on the Georgia Pollinator Census Facebook page. We can get an ID for you. But for the census count, just put it in the other category. When I try to take pictures of insects or birds or whatever, I'm chasing them all over the place with a Ends and it ends up <laughs> being all fuzzy. And is yeah. there a technique that you use that you get good results with? It's hard. It's a challenge. <laughs> Well, I have a daughter who's a photographer and she tells me all the time, the best camera is the one you have on you and you have your cell phone on you. And I honestly use my cell phone in place of a lens because I can zoom in pretty close. Yeah, they're going to be flitting around. So you do the best you can. A lot of times if I see that certain insect is coming back and forth to a certain flower, I may zoom in on that flower and just wait or take a short video hoping it'll fly in the path. But you're right. They flit around. I'm trying really hard to take pictures of some of our unique Georgia flies 
And man, they are not kidding. When they name that fly a fly, it does not hang out. It does not buzz around just kind of leisurely. They are on the move. Yes, it is difficult. Do the best you can. Your local extension agent can help with ID as well. We want this to be a good learning experience. So just get out there and have a good time with it. What do we do if it rains the census days? If you have cursed me, I will haunt you. No, (laughs) it is not going to rain. It is not going to rain on census days. We may have um, some pop-up thunderstorms in the evening, but it's so hot that time of year that you're going to want to count in the morning anyway. And if it rains on Friday, then you just get out there and count on Saturday. I am thinking positively that rain will not be an issue in the 2021 census. So there's no rain out dates. No. In order for the data to be really useful for researchers, it needs to be the same dates each year. We don't have any rain out dates. So everybody do the best you can. Keep your fingers crossed. Put some um, good prayers up there for us. Uh, We're looking for sunny August 20th and 21st. It's going to be sunny. Yay. <laughs> <laughs> can people that don't care for insects exist with pollinators in the same garden? Yes, they can. And actually, they're going to have to. Because if you want a good harvest, you want to keep down some of your pest insects, you're going to have to learn to coexist. And this is a true story. I grow plants around my yard to attract wasps because I enjoy studying them. I don't grab them, but I am right there trying to get their pictures. I'm trying to study their form, seeing what they're visiting. I have never been stung by a wasp in my garden. Now, I have been stung in my house when a wasp has died and I walked barefoot across my floor. That has happened to me. As long as you're not grabbing them, they're not interested in you. You're not a flower. You're not giving them nutrition. You're not giving them food for their young. Just enjoy them and make peace with it. And if you want a good harvest, if you want a successful garden, you're going to have to make peace with the insects out there. How do you balance mosquito control with pollinator habitat? With any kind of pest, and mosquito is a good example. The first thing you need to do is learn as much as you can about mosquitoes. And what we know about mosquitoes is the female needs some standing water to lay eggs in. So the first thing I tell anybody is where is your standing water? Do you have an old pool out back? Do you have a a bucket that has been accidentally left outside? Do you have a bird bath that never gets dumped or cleaned? When you start taking away those elements, your mosquito population will diminish. We do have some problems with mosquito sprays because as far as I know, there is no mosquito spray that does not also harm our pollinators. That being said, I would definitely be looking out for that standing water and getting rid of that. If you have a good balance in your ecosystem, there are things that like to eat mosquitoes. Bats love to eat mosquitoes. What's your bat population look like? I would be looking for a solution that is non-chemical before I start calling a service that's going to hurt your pollinators, but it's going to create an imbalance in your garden of good insects and you will have more pest problems. I guarantee that pests fill the void. They multiply quickly. They're opportunistic. Anytime you take out the population of everything, the pest insects come back faster. There's no such thing as a biological control or a natural control to take care of mosquitoes that won't harm the pollinators. Yes, there is actually. If you have a bird bath that you want to leave out, you can buy things called dunks. And they're actually a bacteria, BTI is the one for mosquitoes. And it will hurt the mosquito larvae as they hatch from the egg being laid on the water, they will not hurt the other insects visiting that bird bath. If you have problems and there's standing water that you want to keep out there for the birds, 
which is the only reason I could think of, or for insects, then the the BTI dunks is what you would want to look for. Uh, Tell us about your pollinator podcast. It's called the Great Georgia Pollinator Podcast, and it is on Spotify and Anchor and Apple Podcasts. It is about 20 minutes, and it's not nearly as professional as this one, but basically we try and cover just topics that are timely, interesting projects that we're doing at UGA involved with pollinators. We have pollinator research all over this state. We like to talk about that. Interesting topics that people have asked me about. We do have one on taking good pictures of insects. We have one on connect to protect program for certifying your pollinator garden. So it's just timely topics that are related to pollinators that we have been requested to give a little more information. You've got a great podcast going there. There's a lot of valuable content in there. I, I recommend that to anybody that wants to build their knowledge of pollinators. It's, you've got a good thing going there. Well, thank you. This is such a professional podcast, so I appreciate that. You mentioned the Connect to Protect program. Tell us about that. What is it? Connect to Protect program is out of the State Botanical Gardens in Athens in collaboration with UGA Extension, and that would be me. It's a certification program where we actually take you through steps of a successful pollinator garden. Do you have things blooming in spring, summer, and fall? Do you have larval plants to be hosts for different butterflies in Georgia? Are you using best management practices, leaving your mulch, having some bare soil, providing habitat for native bees, those type of things? And then if you meet all the criteria, you can become a Connect to Protect garden and you can actually find on the website for the State Botanical Gardens how to apply and you can get a nice little placard. And our logic is that we want to have these pocket gardens, we call them. And if we have enough of them that we can connect them and they'll make a corridor for pollinators. And one of the great things that I find successful about the pollinator census in conjunction with this program is when you go to upload your counts, you will be asked, Did you create or expand a pollinator garden as a result of this census? And we have had over 2,000 yeses. So we have over 2,000 new pocket pollinator gardens that were developed between 2019 and now as a result of the census. So we're thinking, wow, we are starting to create these bigger pockets, which eventually will make into corridors, which means that we can help migratory pollinators. It is a pet project that we're all pretty excited about. And again, if you're interested, look at the State Botanical Garden website. Is that mainly in suburban, urban, or rural areas? Uh, You would think uh, suburban would be the number one, right? Mm -hmm. Because we have a lot of people who love their gardens. But no, we have a lot in the urban areas. We also have them in the row crop county areas, school gardens, family gardens. A lot of people who've never visited a true farm would be surprised or maybe not to know that they actually grow pollinator habitat to bring in pollinators, especially around things like squash and watermelon. And they also bring in other beneficial insects to help with serious crop farming. So some of those men and women farmers have jumped on board and become a Connect to Protect Gardens as well. So if you want to certify your garden, is there a way to do that? Yes, you just visit the Botanical Garden website and look for the Connect to protect tab and it will lead you through the process of becoming certified and it's really an educational process it it will question you about reminding you you need a succession of bloom reminding you that habitat is not just flowers but do we have habitat for those overwintering bumblebee queens do we have habitat for those 
orchard bee nests, those type of things. It kind of guides you through what a successful pollinator garden would need. At the end, you become an important part of the Connect to Protect family. You've mentioned several times that pollinator gardens bring in other beneficial insects. What are those? Well, that's a great question, and there are several different types. Most obvious type is predators. So when we see wasps in the garden, those beautiful black wasps or wasps that have the beautiful yellow stripes, these wasps are visiting your garden not only to get nectar for themselves, they're scouting and they're looking for maybe some soft-bellied insects like pickle worms or cabbage worms that are hanging out and causing problems in your crops. And they're going to capture those. They're going to paralyze them and take them back for their young. They are actually doing a lot of benefits to your garden. They're doing some pest control for you free of charge from the price of a little nectar. Another example are parasitic wasps. And a good case study on that is I love to grow lettuce. I love a good salad. I grow my lettuce in whiskey half barrels that I can move around my garden to microclimate it a little bit. They also attract aphids because aphids love nothing more than a juicy lettuce leaf, right? I had a problem with aphids and I was neglectful in looking at it when I first saw it. But when I came back, I found what we term aphid mummies. I was very excited about that because an aphid mummy is where a parasitic wasp has found my awful, awful aphids and put an egg inside an aphid. As that egg hatches, the resulting larvae eat out the inside of the aphid, hang out in there and finish their growing, and they will emerge as a wasp looking for nectar for themselves, looking to mate, and then do the same thing again. Because I have a pollinator garden with nectar for these parasitic wasps, I also get the pest control, the eco-services, we call them, of those wasps on things like aphids. You are bringing in all sorts of wonderful things that are doing a great job for your garden for you. So we're trying to keep the garden balanced as far as the insects. And so if we have to go to a pesticide, then we're typically, we might be throwing things out of balance. Is that a fair assessment? Right. I always say, and, and I'm school and integrated pest management. We always say chemicals are your very, very last resort, especially we're not depending on this food. Hopefully we've got farmers that are growing a lot of our good things. If you see squash bug eggs, wipe them off. If you see aphids and you don't see aphid mummies, take a wet paper towel. If you see leaf cutter or leaf footed bugs, pick them off, put them in soapy water. There's no reason for you on the side of the first leaf footed bug to run grab the seven. If you do that, I guarantee you're going to have more pest issues and your garden is not going to be as fruitful. How busy have you been leading up to this year's census? If I could clone myself, I would do it. But I'm having a great time. I'm working with school teachers on getting their lesson plans ready for the census. I am working with businesses, getting things going. I am posting events on the website. I'm creating social media and working with the technology crew to make sure that when people upload their accounts, it's flawless. We're also, as a side project, we are doing the Sculptured Resin Bee Project. And this is where people who are out in their pollinator gardens, especially looking at where carpenter bees hang out, are you seeing a different bee this year? We're thinking that it could be a sculptured resin bee and we're asking people to report those. And I had about 20 reports of resin bees on my desk this morning. So just a lot of really fun stuff, getting ready for the census, making sure everybody has what they need to be successful, doing some interviews, writing some articles, just having a great time leading up to August 20th and 21st. 
What are your hopes for this year's census? I am hopeful that we have more Georgians participate. Last year, we had a lot of people count at home with their families. We didn't have a lot of businesses. We had a few schools. Now I'm hoping that businesses, schools, and families from across the state, from North Georgia down to Tifton and Savannah, from Augusta on over, I would like every county to be represented by a census taker. I want people to have fun, and I want comments like, I can't believe how much fun this is. I can't believe the insects I'm seeing. That is my hope, that everybody has a good time. We have sunny weather and we have some good counting this year. So my fingers are crossed. Everything is pointing to a great census this year. So I will definitely let you know how it turns out. Becky, tell us where to connect with the Pollinator Census and how to connect with you. The Pollinator Census website has all of the information anybody would need to participate. And that is at ggapc.org. To connect with me, email is the best way. And my email is b-e-c-k-y-g-r-i at u-g-a dot e-d-u. Becky Griffin, thank you for making a difference with the great Georgia Pollinator Census. You're amazing. This has been episode 19 of the Garden Question Podcast, the great Georgia Pollinator Census. The goal is that every episode is valuable and well worth your time. Please generously share the Garden Question Podcast with your friends, relatives, and neighbors. Check out our website, thegardenquestion.com, for links, resources, and where you can listen to every episode again and again. You will not want to miss a weekly episode, so please subscribe to the Garden Question Podcast with Craig McManus on your favorite listening app. Keep on designing, building, and growing a smarter garden that works.